This is Cultural Quarter of an Hour and I'm Charlotte Foster. Every week we will be exploring the culture of Stoke-on-Trent and the surrounding area. Some weeks I'll be visiting events, other weeks I'll be looking back at our history, but always with an eye on the future. And you'll also hear the stories of the people who make this area just what it is. Culture is all around us. It's in the buildings, it's deep underground, it's in the air, and of course, it's in our blood. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. If you were listening last week, you'll know full well that this week is part two. If you haven't listened to part one, that first bit of my conversation with Stephen Seabridge, you'll need to go and listen to that first, if I'm being absolutely honest. You will need to go and have a quick listen to that. So stop what you're doing. Go download that podcast, listen to it, and then come back. Are you back yet? So this is part two of my conversation with Stephen Seabridge. Part one was good, wasn't it? I enjoyed it. Uh, Part two is more about Stephen. And I asked him what this role has done for him. If you remember last week, he said it made him far more organised. And I said, so I asked him what what this role has done for him, apart from making him a little bit more organised. Well, it's made me more skilled. It's made me more, um, you know, open to feedback from a wide range of people who are might not have en- encountered otherwise. Uh, the steering group, anything that I'm commissioned for, they have a very active voice on anything that I write, and that's been really good because usually when, say, say if you're in a kind of relationship where you have a mentor and, you know, you're a kind of, you're apprenticed to that mentor, then you get their feedback all the time and you trust their feedback, but you come to a point where you start to question it and push back. And that's good because it becomes more of a conversation, but you need, you need a lot of different avenues so that your work is seen by a lot of different people and it's that you get feedback from a lot of different experiences and voices um that's sometimes a bit traumatic (laughs) because people um some people are a bit more polite than others let's just say that there um but how else has it changed me i think it's just completely changed who i am if if i'm honest i'm i don't really i don't really think i am the same Stephen i was before because it tests you on so many different levels, being a, a kind of public figure who has to speak in front of, not has to, wants to speak in front of lots of people. That's a, that's a terrifying thing to do at first, but then it, you suddenly become this confident alien creature that you didn't recognise in yourself before. But also it gives you that period afterwards where you are constantly self-reflecting, you are constantly getting over your own performance and... I know this sounds a bit like heavy, but always self-improving. And I think that's a huge change because I think before this, I was getting a bit lazy at my poetry. You know, I was not not saying, oh, you know, I can do it so I'm going to become a lazy writer kind of thing. But you start to maybe become a bit lapse on some elements. And then when someone throws you into a public arena that isn't as forgiving, you have to rise, you have to, you have to, rise to the challenge then. Um, so, yeah, I don't really recognise the old me. Which is a good thing. I don't mean that with any kind of sadness or anything. It's, it's a, a more confident, more egregious, more you know, giving me as well. And that, I think what the laureates show me is the importance of giving to a public, and provide, and not just 
not just the performance being a, a given thing or, or an entertainment, but also giving advice and helping people in their work and their craft. A lot of people find it difficult to even ask for advice. So to know that there's somebody there who is willing to offer it, I think is quite a good thing. You mentioned a little bit earlier about changing people's attitudes to poetry. Yeah. What do you think people's attitudes to poetry are and what, what needs to change? Well, in What would you like to change, not necessarily like? needs to change? I don't think I would like everybody in the world to wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to write poetry for the rest of my life because then the economy would break, everybody would be a poet and there'd be no market for me. <laughs> no, but what I, would, what I would like to happen is, for, I mean, for a long time, and this is in every setting that I've been in, so if I teach undergraduates or if I go into schools or if I talk to adults about it, whoever, there's this attitude that poetry is an elitist craft. Only middle-class white men who live in London are it's accessible for. That's the general attitude. It is changing quite a lot. But it's almost as if it's outside of the experience of most people and they wouldn't consider it a form that they had any access to at all. And that's because it's been written in certain ways for the last half century. You know, there's been a... An, a focus on forms and being rigid and this is what you must write if you are a poet and what I want to happen is already kind of happening people are using poetry they are they are kind of ripping up the rule book and saying well this is what I'm going to do with it and I, I do that I don't write in form I, I, if I do it's a kind of broken form that lets me get out of doing it anyway um, but what I want to happen is is that People from all kinds of backgrounds look to poetry as a, as a way of reading. That they don't have to, if they don't want to, they don't have to go and write a whole collection, you know. That they look at it as a, as a form that is welcoming rather than alienating. Um, that if that person thinks that they have something to say, they consider poetry as, as a form that, through which they could do that. But also that it's paired to other forms of artwork. Poetry is like held up on this pedestal as if it's its own entity and it can't interact with other art forms. And it can. I mean, it can interact very well with visual arts, with music, with, um, I mean, all kinds of different forms. But what people have to realise, I think, as well, or what I really want them to realise is, particularly around here with dialects and in cities like in the regions, as they say, I've just done speech marks because, yeah, I understand that people can't see when I'm doing speech marks, but in the regions, as they call them, the, the dialect of the everyday voice has so much music within it already and has so much poetry within it already. So usually when you're in areas like this, people can write poetry quite well if they just write for their own voices because it has so much rhyme already in there. It's got so many irregularities. It's got so much weirdness in it. Um, what do I really want to happen? I really want to, by the end of this two years and then see this progressing on through the next laureates, is that I see younger people who may be in primary or high school now perhaps turning 18 20 and being very comfortable with poetry having a presence in the city all the time that it's not an alien thing to see a poem on a board in the middle of Hanley that it's a, a kind of given and I think that is already happening so all I can say is I want the wave to continue and I want people from you know communities that have been oppressed and the working class community is is one that's historically oppressed but people of color people of different genders people who you know all of these communities that are at a kind of risk point you know at the moment but may continue to be for the next few years as that negotiation goes on that poetry is used to unlock an experience and unlock a negotiation i've seen i've seen people who might be called intolerant before be read to you know have an experience um, 
presented to them and it can change the way that they think. That's not an instant thing, but it can build upon that negotiation of bringing people together rather than dividing people. What's your background then? You mentioned oh. it's a, you know, poetry is seen as white middle-class men in London. Yeah. I You're mean, a man. I, yeah, I'm a man. You are white. I'm white. But... I mean, this is a real difficulty at the minute because I come from a working-class family. You know, my family were railway men, potters, women, miners, somewhere along that. All, the whole shebang, obviously, you know, they're all in there. But that, we don't have access to that now, really. I mean, we do have a pottery industry, but there, there aren't many jobs in that. We can go and do a trade. We can do that kind of thing. But that, because I took an academic path, I'm somehow belonging to that working class, but not quite anymore. Belonging to an academic class, but not really feeling like that's my arena at all. So I, I'm in between at the minute. I still identify as a working class writer for better or worse I know that term has a lot of loaded ideas at the minute but I I think there's a lot of people who feel homeless when it comes to what background they are and what class they are because again I I can really resonate with that Mm. as well my mum worked part-time because she had to look after us my dad worked in an office Mm. but there wasn't I'm the first one in my family that went to university well I mean I did this um I, I I can really pair with that because I think I was the first one in my family to go to uni, first one in the whole family to go and do an MA and then on, on to PhD. I mean, I'm the kind of complete black sheep of that family because nobody really knows why this has happened. You know, but it's it's like that betweenness is quite healthy and that like you say homelessness I wouldn't I wouldn't use that term because I think being in between places is quite it's quite a good thing it's quite a good perspective to have because you can ally yourself with a lot of different groups but then say well maybe I aren't part of that section of that group and that's okay it is a constant negotiation though because as soon as you you know as soon as you talk start talking about poetry and you start talking about art there's always that sense of that you're somehow elevated and I, I don't like that art isn't elevated art is usually grounded and it's usually quite visceral and raw and it's on about usually it's on about everyday experiences that we all have the problem is you know this perception that surrounds art that it belongs in the ivory tower usually when people buy into that it restricts them from then creating that grounded and professional work that they could that they could do through uh, they could use their skills at, at producing but this city's a bit of a weird one because we're a city that is so historically artistic, we are makers, we're productive, but there isn't those words attached to it. You know, the pottery was, it was a trade, you know, it was a, and it, that is a very class thing, it was a trade, not an artwork, but it is incredibly artistic and creative, and I think we just have to get away from these quite loaded ideas of what art is, and just make it more of a free-for-all. You know, anybody can produce something, they, don't, they might not want to, or they, you know, they might say, I'll never do that again, but just recognising the inherent creativity that people have, I think that's essential in the next step forward. Like I say, yeah, I am. I am a white man, and I'm, you know, I, I don't know where I am in terms of class, and I don't know what, you know, most of the time I, I do have a voice, but I don't really know what to say yet because I'm in that between space where I have to negotiate, but I think a lot of my work does reference that that working class oppression this idea that 
working class people are stupid and only good for manual labour, which is ridiculous, it's rubbish. Because, and what you'll find in this city is, I mean, I'm flitting about now with my answer, I'm getting all over the place, but it, what you'll find in this city is, is that you've got a lot of highly intelligent and highly skilled people who, because they don't think they're academic, they don't think they're clever. And that's just, it's rubbish. Because if you're a builder or if, you're, uh, if, you, if you are making something in a pottery factory, in a pottery factory you are building something, you are creating something. That's just the same as if you're an academic writing a research paper or if you're a poet writing a poem. It's the same thing, you're building something. So I think we need to level the playing field, get rid of the, these outdated ideas that this thing is for this particular kind of person and this thing is for this person and just let people engage in those crafts and ideas that they might not have thought were for them before. Once we do that, once we do that, we'll have world peace and we'll have saved the world. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you at the yeah, end of yeah. your, uh, your tenureship as poet laureate to see if we've got world peace <laughs> yeah. and, and all of that. And if you have, have, you'll have succeeded. Peace. We might have a bit of stoke peace. And I, th I think we have to say a year or two ago, this city was completely different. You know, the idea that what this city was, you know, in the media or in reports or in any writing that was produced about it, you know, it was a failing left behind city that had no hope of being restored and all that, clinging on to a golden age that frankly, the material conditions of that golden age weren't golden, let's be honest, not for people who might have been born in, into working class families. But now, we, I mean, after that huge surge that we had with the culture bid, yeah, we, we didn't win, but I think it kind of did the job. It did what it needed to do here because the solidarity that emerged from that and the idea that people can work together to produce something with very little resources, that's a real good lesson that we learned there. I, I've thought a, a long, for a long time about it and there is a part of me that feels, you know, a bit of regret that we didn't win and a bit dis a disappointment, but also a kind of relief. I know that sounds really odd at the minute and I don't know what other people might think about this, but when we have a city of culture, we have to be very careful on what we term culture and what we don't term culture. And I, I would really have, if we had have won, I would have hated for that thing to happen where certain elements of culture are censored or removed to, to cherry pick essentially. Because in this city, the culture that's in say Shelton and the culture in Endon are completely different and the culture of city centre is completely different from the borough so how can we how can we ensure when we have a city of culture or when we bid for something like that that no one is excluded so in a way I wonder if we had have won what would have been you know slung on the slag heap what would have been buried you know, they're quite nice metaphors for place around here because we have buried quite a lot of things but I would have hated if we'd have won for people to feel that the city of culture belonged to one aspect of the city's culture, not all of it. Because I've spoken to people from Glasgow who had city of culture before the millennium and, you know, the displacement of working class people from the centre of Glasgow to the fringes and in Edinburgh when it went through its kind of highbrow revolutions, you know, it, it, it can result in people being excluded rather than rather than celebrated. So I don't know how I feel about it per se. I'm in those two minds where I think, oh God, we, we could have done with that money, but then maybe avoided something that uh, politically and individually could have been quite toxic at the same time. So where do we go now then? Where do we go now? It's all down to you. 
It's all down to me. I think where we go now is we maybe turn the focus away from huge amounts of external funding that might swoop in and make lots of changes that people aren't ready for. What I think we do is we work together as artists, as practitioners, as council members, as members of the public to say what we want, what we want in a city like this, how we want it to develop. And then we build projects that, yeah, might, might not be funded. I mean, heaven forbid the word voluntary comes along, you know. But we, we work together to make projects that the public are interested in that prove that, in, that interest is there and then build upon that. And then because it's, always, it's almost always the case that the, the projects that are low-funded, that have little resources and are a success, go on to make really successful funded projects in the future. And I think we need to, as a city, realise that not all the time someone from outside is going to swoop in and save us from anything and that we might have to kind of do it ourselves. But I, th I suspect if we did do it ourselves, and I mean, you know, building cultural infrastructure and artistic projects all the way through the city and making welfare and policy making changes that are beneficial, if we do it ourselves, it would probably be a hell of a lot better because we get things done here and we don't beat about it. Now, it's not often I do a two-parter. Usually I keep the conversations quite succinct and quite, you know, ready to go in this format of cultural quarter of an hour. The clue's in the title. I thought I was being funny. I still do think I'm being funny. I think it's a funny title. But I do normally try and keep the conversations within that time. But I just had such good fun talking to Stephen. And we, like, if you were here for the first week, you'll know that we spent two hours chatting. It's been great talking to Stephen. And I look forward to sort of seeing him around in a few more places. So keep bumping into each other. And uh, keep, I look forward to hearing his work. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, please get in touch. You can get in touch with me on Facebook at, no, that's Twitter, on Twitter, at, no, oh, flipping heck, I don't have a script, I don't know if you've worked this out, I don't have a script. You can get in touch with me on Facebook, Cultural Quarter and Hour Podcast, and you can get in touch with me on Twitter too, at CQHpod, and um, I'll be back next week with another podcast.